And I'm thankful for the reading of the word this morning as we are in Haggai. I hope you'll stay with me there um, as we continue this sermon series through the book of 12, the Minor Prophets. Um, it's been uh, full. We are, uh, we have, what, two weeks left after this? Uh, so we are in our 10th week in the Minor Prophets. And that's, um, that's a lot. If you've been here the whole time, uh, it's felt weighty at times. If you were here the last time I preached, it was particularly weighty, a very difficult word to hear, and yet true of our circumstances and, and, and makes us cry out in, in need for the Lord. This morning in Haggai, we have something that's maybe um, a little bit different because it hits us, I think, because of our cultural circumstance, uh, the way that we are in the neighborhoods in which we tend to find ourselves and in our own households and our own way of life. This morning when um, Haggai, next week will be in Zechariah, these two were contemporaries. They both prophesied after the return of the Israelites from exile. And as we've seen in the other prophets, uh, the Lord judged Israel and Judah. Israel in that northern kingdom, Judah in that southern kingdom. And he judged them for their sinful rebellion and failure to repent. And so really most of the minor prophets that we've been looking at so far has been leading up to that judgment. That judgment has taken place. The Lord sent them into exile and he scattered them among the nations. So Haggai and Zechariah are after the return from that exile as some remnant that, that were scattered among those nations are gathered back into the land and both Haggai and Zechariah encourage the building of the temple that the remnant has, has returned to. Now, I'm going to give you a couple dates. Please stay with me with the dates. These actually matter. They're relevant to the point of the message, not just dates for you to memorize. Uh, the first wave of returned exiles returned in 538 B.C. All right, you've got to think backwards. This is B.C. and we're counting down to zero. 538 B.C. was this first wave of return to exiles. The temple was not completed until 516 B.C. Now, I know you're trying to hold these 538, 516. Do some math in your head, and you'll see that 22 years passed. So that means that they're in the land. The Lord has provided for them the mercy of return after judgment. But they're in that land for 22 years with no worship, no sacrifice, no presence of the Lord in their midst, in the place that the Lord has commanded, which is his temple in his holy city, Jerusalem. Now, if you look at verse 1 with me, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and secondly, to Joshua, the son Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, as I read that, we have a calendar, and the fact is, I don't base my calendar app on the reign of King Darius, all right? Uh, so I have to do a little bit of math, I have to do a little research, a little bit of work to find out that this means that this is taking place in 520 B.C. So this is four years before the temple wound up being 
finished. So one of the things that tells me right away is if we know that the temple was finished in 516 and this is taking place in 520 and Haggai is about calling the people of God to the obedience of completing the temple, we know it worked. All right, so already we have, we have a little bit of context of, of good news. But it also means that we are 18 years into pretty radical disobedience. We, we don't, our concern is not for the worship of the Lord. It does, we think that we can sort of have God without the way God has said that he would be with us. All right, that, we, we're 18 years into idolatry. All right? Now, Haggai, one of the things that is a, is a, a compulsion for Joel and I, uh, by the way, it's a blessing to be here. It's a blessing to be here with Joel particularly and be able to, after like 30 months of not doing this, be able to lead a service together uh, in one space together. We, we do this together with others who participate in, in leading one another, participating together in two different congregations in the county, but this morning we get to do it together right here in this space. It's sweet. One of the things that our objective in doing this sermon series is that we would give these books to you. Now you have them. They're yours. But honestly, they've been my books all of these years, but I don't understand them. I haven't slowed down. I've read them, but I haven't slowed down enough to actually like have some handles to grab a hold of them and have some understanding. So one of the things I want to give to you is just a couple handles for the text. All of this is going to be on our Church Center app. So if you go on there, you can click on Haggai and, and get to know this during the course of your week. Give you some handles to get, let you take Haggai and go home with it. Because this morning we're going to be in mostly chapter 1. But we want you to go home with this book. Haggai chapter 1 is the first of four sermons. Haggai is made up of four sermons. So when you read it, look for the way that these sermons begin. Haggai 1, the Lord makes a dispute with the returned exiles. The issue at at hand in the book of Haggai is introduced in this first sermon. The second sermon begins in chapter 2. All right, in verses 1 through 9, we have the second sermon. The Lord encourages Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest. Then chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, is the third sermon. The Lord explains the spiritual corruption that corrupts worship. How our spiritual corruption, no matter what words we sing, uh, when we gather in the name of the Lord, our spiritual condition defiles our can uh, our spiritual corruption can defile our worship. And then we have that fourth sermon beginning in verse 20, really short sermon there at the end. The Lord chooses Zerubbabel. And he says, you're of my Davidic line. And he affirms that the Lord is going to work his divine purposes through Zerubbabel, particularly the temple is going to get built. It takes four years to do it, but it's going to get built. So here's a little paragraph from a commentator named Richard Taylor. And he gives an explanation of the book of Haggai. Again, just to give this to you, to go home and spend some time with this great book. The overall purpose of the book of Haggai is thus quite clear. Its four messages seek to stir the people of Judah to turn from their self-centered ways to undertake with God's help the restoration of the Jerusalem temple so that the Lord may again uniquely manifest himself in that sacred space. What's the goal? Not to build a building. But that in that space, God would be with his people. That's the goal. 
If they will present themselves to him as pure, the Lord promises divine enablement to his task, unsurpassed glory for the new temple, and elevation of the Davidic heir to lead the people in triumph over their enemies. Now that last little bit is beautiful because it's more than about the temple that a Davidic heir would lead the people in triumph. Man, we're talking about Jesus. This book is about Jesus. This morning we're going to focus on the first sermon in which the Lord makes a dispute with the returned exiles that have neglected the building of the temple. I want to begin our time in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for help. We ask that you would work among this people by your spirit present as you have promised that we've sort of built this building We've, we've gathered this church. And you said you would be present in our midst. We pray that your word would work by the power of your spirit to apply to our lives that we might not only understand, we might not only go home with handles to a book, but that we would be changed by your grace. We pray that you would do this in the midst of the congregation this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to begin by looking at the idea of sowing to eternal joy. Uh, look at the dispute. The dispute is in verse 2. In verse 2 it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. All right, this is the, the, where the Lord begins his concern. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is his dispute. You seem to have concluded it's not time The circumstances are not right. Perhaps there aren't enough resources. Maybe they don't know how to build stuff. Maybe that's it. They just don't have enough construction workers. Maybe it's not a construction issue. Maybe it's an architectural issue. Let's see if that's what's really happening. The time has not yet come. We don't have what it takes. It's not the right circumstances. Is that true? Look at verse 3. 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And the the Lord says this to what the people are saying. The people are saying it's not time, not the right circumstances, don't have the resources or something. Verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, the people have already said it's not time to build. It's not time to give attention to the way that the Lord has said he would be with his people in the temple. Is it true that it's a good time to build your nice paneled houses while my temple lives in ruins? You see, it turns out that people do have enough resources to build for themselves. They do have enough architects, and they do have enough builders because they're building their houses. You see, it's not a circumstantial problem. Evidently, it's a problem of priority or perhaps a problem of the heart. Let's look at the Lord's diagnosis. And to do that, we're going to jump ahead just a little bit in the text. We're going to go down to verse 9. And it says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Why are things not working out for you these days? Right? Why are you, after 18 years, why are you still building your paneled houses and planting in your fields 
and laboring as wage laborers, and yet you're not moving forward. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Man, I just, sometimes you read the Bible and it sounds just like the words sound true, but they also sound a little bit foreign, you know? They sound true, and if you look at them closely, they make sense, but sometimes sentences like that are just like, yeah, that's me. I get that. You're not attending to worship, but you're busying yourself with your own house. I think this verse cuts to the heart with a clarity that's nearly unparalleled in the Bible. How often do we sort of silently agree together as a people? You see, you don't just have an individual in Jerusalem that decided, I'm not going to contribute to the building of the temple. I'm going to build my house. No, this is a people that have conspired together. This sort of decided together silently, because if you said it out loud, that'd be heresy, but sort of silently, you know, we, it's not really time yet, right, neighbor? It's, it's time to attend to our houses, right? Get our houses built up real good. You see, it wasn't an individual problem alone. It was a community problem. A scattered households have silently conspired to say, it's time to care for me and mine to the neglect of the worship of the Lord. What we have is a cultural problem. And here's the deal. We, we like to, in the church, talk about cultural problems, right? I mean, that culture. The culture's just going downhill, right? No, but this isn't a cultural problem out there. This is a culture problem in here. We are that culture, an unspoken culture to be a certain way of apathy toward the worship and presence of the Lord. This is the accusation of the Lord in Haggai. And here's what he says. He says, consider your ways. He says it twice. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, what is the command of the passage? The command is not, go build the temple. Not yet. Now, he'll get there. I mean, the implication is pretty clear. But the, the command, and I think the, the, the implication for us today is primarily this. Consider your ways. Are you doing it? Are you actively engaged right now in the, in the command? You, can, you don't even have to like go home and do this during the week. You can do that right now. Consider your ways. How has it been for you these days? This is sort of a, a how's it going for you moment. The, the people have not been concerned for the ways of the Lord, particularly his design for worship. The temple, it's supposed to be the center of the community. From the moment the tabernacle was built in the wilderness, on through history with the establishment of the temple, the, the, the temple is supposed to be the center, not only of worship, but the center of the community in the center of the city. It's not only the place that God manifests his presence among the people. It's also supposed to be the place that is the center of the lives of the people. So the people orient every aspect of their cultural way of being, every aspect of their households around the worship of the Lord. Are you considering your ways? 
So worship would not be this thing that you do off to the side for an hour or so on a Sunday morning. But worship would be that thing that is central to the life of the community that orients the whole of our households. Worship is the center of their lives according to the design of the Lord. And the temple stood in the center to declare that reality to the community. Worship is the enjoyment of the presence of the Lord and the good gifts that come by his generous grace. I want to go back to the beginning of that. What is worship? It's an enjoyment of the presence of the Lord and and all the benefits that come from God with us. And this worship is to be the deepest satisfaction of the people of the Lord. So the people say this, consider your ways. If there is no presence, if there's no presence, what's the point? If there's no house of the Lord where the Lord would make his presence among the people, I don't even want a house. You see, Moses says, Lord, you've given us this great vision of a land and a wilderness to wander through, but then a land to occupy. And he says, man, if you don't go before us, we're not going. Because no presence, there's no point. It's in their trust and dependence upon the Lord. There's satisfaction in his provision that the people are to build their society. That the presence of the Lord is the foundation of their households. It is the presence of the Lord is the justice of their government. And it's the joy of their lives. We have this definition of worship that's in the partnership manual at Cross Point Coast and it begins in this way, worship is living in the presence of the holy God. Now that living in the presence of the holy God is through the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. It's with an attitude of reverence and awe and it creates a living sacrifice of tribute and fellowship but at its essence, worship is living, like enlivenedness in the presence of the Holy God. Life in the presence of the Holy God. Now, how can you expect to live in the presence of the Holy God if you neglect the temple in which the Lord has promised to make his presence known? That's the question for the people in Haggai. How can you expect to live worship if you're neglecting presence. The bottom line is this. The people have conspired together to pretend that they can establish their lives. To pretend that they can find their joy and find justice and community by seeking their own private household happiness. Consider your ways. That that they would establish the whole of their joy, their provision, their justice, their satisfaction by neglecting the worship of the Lord as the center of their corporate life in their community together. These are households gathered together around their individual lives. Rather than households gathered together around the house. You see, there is a house. 
and that house, as we continue to see Revelation unfold, there is a house, and the house remains to this day. And that house is Jesus Christ. There is a temple, and it is the Christ, as the great fulfillment of the shadow that was the temple is fulfilled with the revelation of Jesus Christ. You remember that in Mark, Jesus went up out of the temple as a sign of judgment upon the temple because he is about to fulfill all of the purpose of the temple. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God with us. He is the divine and perfect and final sacrifice. He is the center locus object of worship and he is the object of our faith that our lives would revolve around him. There is a temple. And there is our individual houses. The call of the Lord is to consider your ways. To put it bluntly, the people of Haggai, they've sought the things of the world rather than the things of God. I want to offer a couple scriptures for our reflection. All of these scriptures are in church center for you. They're on the podcast for you. Matthew chapter 3 verse 30. Matthew chapter 3, verse 30 says, O you of little faith, Jesus speaking, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? You can hear the people, What paneled houses shall we dwell in? Right? The Gentiles seek after these things. You know those lands that you, I brought you up out of as a remnant and preservation for my glory and your good? You remember that? That's what they worry about. Your heavenly Father knows you need all those things. He knows it. But your business is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You build the house, I'll build your house. You center your lives around my presence. You build your provision, your justice, your joy around me, and I will fill you. They've sought first what they shall eat, what they shall wear, and they figured that the things of God could be added later on when they get all those things in order. And he says, consider your ways. How's it going for you? Now, the more practical among us, and I would encourage you, like lean in, those of you who are more inclined to say that's all well and good, but you do have to eat, right? I mean, at some point, you need food. It's okay. You do need to drink. You have to live somewhere. And it's interesting. I think Jesus would actually disagree. I mean, you are, everything that is in you that's saying, but I mean, but you do have to eat. And Jesus says, actually, no. You see, he had been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And in, as I do the math on that, after 40 days, I think you got to eat, all right? About 40 minutes, and I think you got to eat. Satan said, I'm going to offer you some bread, and I know what my response would be. The Lord works in mysterious ways. You know, sometimes he can even work through Satan. Here is God bringing me bread. And Jesus says, no. He says, no, man doesn't live. If, you're, if you don't live, what do you do? Yeah. 
And man shrivels up and dies. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Every word. That's not how I live. Jesus says, I live by God's word. I live by a deep dependence upon God, his provision. My my life is grounded in and preserved by the word of the Father, period. First faith, then according to the provision of the Lord, all these things are added. Man, that's a difficult pill to swallow. It goes everything against everything that is natural to me. Does Jesus really mean that if you're starving in a desert and you're given only one wish, that we should skip the opportunity to wish for food and drink? And I think the answer is, yeah, he does actually mean that. Instead, you should use the opportunity to say, you know, there is one thing that I would ask for. One thing that I would seek. And if I could have the presence of God, if I could have the voice of my Father, I'll take that. You can have all the rest, but give me Jesus. You can't eat a Bible. Can a voice feed you? And as I recall it, every day of creation begins with the words, and God said. Can a voice feed you? Haggai makes the argument this way. Verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You've sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you have not. You don't have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. He, he frames it in this idea of sowing much and harvesting little. You've tried really hard, and how's it going for you? Do you get that? Consider your ways, right? How's it going for you? You've sought to feed and clothe and shelter yourself, but it's not working out. You're, you were never supposed to provide for yourselves in that way. At the end of the day, that's just called legalism. You're never supposed to live by your work. You were supposed to live by faith. That's Habakkuk. Just a little while ago, the scriptures continue this argument throughout the Bible. Just like here in Haggai, often the metaphor that's used is the image of sowing and reaping. In Galatians chapter 6, and I I would encourage a jotting down in the margin of your Bible here, Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So we got this sowing and reaping thing. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You see, this reaping, this sowing and reaping relationship is not a matter of how much. It isn't a a question of how much did you sow if you sow a lot, man. You get a lot, all right? It's a question of the nature of the seed that is sown. Some have tried to make this passage about how much, about giving more and more and more. And as long as you keep giving 10% of what you give, you'll get even more. As long as you keep giving 10%, you'll get even more. It's a message about an offering plate and the idolatry of a church, probably. 
But this isn't a question about how much. It, it's not, it's Paul's central purpose in Galatians isn't to sow more, but to sow entirely differently. No longer to sow to the flesh to reap the world's corruption, but to sow to the Spirit. You reap what you sow is a distinction between sowing in order to reap things that are finite rather than eternal. It's a distinction between sowing things that are passing away for receiving things that are passing away to sowing things that are unfading to receive things that are unfading. So to the flesh you'll reap rotten, decaying, dying, corrupt, fleshy things. So to the spirit you'll reap imperishable, undefiled, unfading things. Here's Proverbs 21, 17. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. Whoever loves wine and oil will not be rich. You see, what that proverb is saying is this world is necessarily limited. If you love to pleasure your appetite with the things of this world, eventually you're going to run out of resources to pleasure yourself. Why? Because we were created with a limitless appetite and limited things. Well, that's cruel. Why would God make us with a limited appetite and stick us in this world? God's not cruel. His design in creating us is righteous and it's excellent. So surely this means that our limitless desire must be satisfied with something that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Man, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, not of the flesh, but rather to the Spirit, right? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And how, what has he borne us to? To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And man, that inheritance is kept for you. It doesn't spoil because it's kept for you. Peter's making an argument that we're to live lives that are oriented toward the divine with a conviction that the Lord alone can satisfy our appetites, and he has. That we're to gain that were we to gain the whole world, we would die with stomachs full and souls empty. But were we to gain Christ? Satisfaction. Here's how Peter continues in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Right now you rejoice. You see, you can rejoice in eternal happiness today. Rejoice and cling to hope of reaping what is sown by faith. What we sow to the Spirit, we reap with the joy of the Spirit today. Though we're grieved with various trials in this world because we can see the praise and glory and honor that will be revealed at the day of Christ Jesus. Glory's coming. And we, by faith, say, the glory that's coming, I'm going to use the hand and the eyes of faith. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to hold it today. I got it all stored up. I'm counting my inheritance today. 
by faith. Titus chapter 3, it puts it like this. For we ourselves were once foolish. Oh yeah, you remember way, way, way back then when you used to be foolish, right? Way back when you used to be disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were foolish. Our natures are foolish and bent on reaping fleshy, corrupted things. But there is a new way that has been purchased for us that is in light of an eternal hope. Jesus in the parables of the soils in Luke chapter 8 says that the thorny soil fails to bear fruit because the word is choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. The word is profitable, but we choke it up by the things of the world. Haggai and the whole testimony of Scripture is drawing a clear dichotomy that there are those who bear or reap the fruit of God's word that is the promise of steadfast love and mercy and provision. And there are those who choke out the word, the promise, the hope, by seeking first the cares and riches and pleasures of the world. Now, if you choose that route, if you choose you're going to fill yourself up with the pleasures of the world, you better be good. You consider your ways. You check, how is it going for you? Because I'll tell you, I'm 45 now, and I've tried really hard at a lot of things. And I am not reaping eternal reward from what I've sown. And you better at least be better than me. You better be confident that you can do it. Because that's all you got. If you are going to sow to the flesh. Man, I know the piles of plans I have for me. I know the plans and ambitions that I have for myself. But I also know I'm not good enough. I'm just not pulling it off. But I know a God who has plans for his people. What does that look like? Can we glimpse the future hope? So we need encouragement right now. Isaiah 65 whets our appetite for an eternal future in which sowing and reaping are simple and sure. Isaiah 65, 17 says this, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The, the former ways of sowing and not reaping in the world, that's passing away. In verse 22 it then says, They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another, another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. I want that world. I want a world in which when you sow in it, according to God's paradise design, yeah, you reap in it. Because that world is rightly ordered with his presence. New heavens and new earth are designed for just such sowing and reaping. The call at the end of this chapter, again, is to consider your ways. And I was struck with these words in verse 7. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your 
ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may, what does it say? That I may take pleasure in it. And that stopped me short. Take pleasure in it. The Lord wants to take pleasure in a dwelling place that is among his people. There's a, a, a book called A Meal with Jesus, and in that book is a quote. I'm unsure of the original author of that quote, and it says this. Since God does not need creation, its whole reason for being must lie in its own goodness. He has no use for it, only delight. God was not sitting around in heaven saying, hmm, bored, need something, think I'll make something. Oh, perfectly satisfied, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he creates and he delights. I find that to be one of the most shocking, transformative realities of Revelation. We exist for the delight of the Lord. Every time he looks at creation, repeatedly he pronounced, it was, that's good. It's good. The Lord's relationship is not utilitarian. The Lord's relationship with creation is not pragmatic. It's not a matter of consumption. It's a simple matter of delight. You see, the Lord is not using us. He's delighting in us. That's what's so wrong with how passages like this are so often taught. The Lord delights in your trust in him. He does not need your trust in him. He delights to satisfy you. As you trust in him. Another quote from that same book, this time from Tim Chester. The world is more delicious than it needs to be. Like, say ah. You sit in that. The Lord is more, the, the world is more delicious than it needs to be. We have a super abundance of divine goodness and generosity flowing, lavish, oozing in the crevices of the beauty of the world that he's made. The world is popping with color. Creation is flowing with diverse excellencies. Doesn't that point us to the reality of our God? The very existence of creation is a tangible abundance of grace. So let us remember that the fact that we are in a fallen world there is such a thing as a people who are called by the name of the Lord. The very fact that in a fallen world there is such a thing as a redeemed people is evidence of lavish grace. In Ephesians 1 it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished can you see it? Lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The very existence of a redeemed people are evidence that the Lord takes pleasure in lavish grace. Psalm 147. His delight is not in the strength of the horse. Nope. Nor is pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope in steadfast love. Why does he take pleasure there? Because the one who hopes in him, he satisfies and saves. What does the Lord love the most? Grace giving. What does the Lord love to see the most? His abundant, 
lavish mercy. Because we are the fruit of his steadfast love and mercy, he loves to see the product of his generous grace. We are his by his choosing. We exist by his grace. Why does the Lord delight in the redeemed? Because our very existence is evidence of glory. The Lord delights in the people who trust in him. It's an aroma of a people who live in dependence upon his provision and enjoy his lavish grace. Now, you remember the situation that we were in in Haggai before we got all caught up talking about delight? There's no dependence. There's an effort to provide for themselves, and then we'll ask God for a leg up, a second chance, maybe a little bit of help getting across that finish line. The Lord doesn't delight in this. It is not a place where the abundance of his grace flows. Psalm 149, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. He dresses us up. Recently, got a new car. I like my new car. Yesterday, I washed it for the second time two weeks in a row. Like, I wash my car with my hand like this. I don't do that with cars, but I got a new car. And I dress it up with wax yesterday. And I I found myself last Sunday walking around my car looking at it. And I I was thinking to myself, what decals would look, I don't think like this, but I got a new car. What decals could I put on my new car? And I like, I like black on gray, man. That is my jam. All right, so I'm thinking I could black out that chrome, make it less shiny, and then it could be black on silver. Wouldn't that be nice? And when the Lord walks around his people, he says, man, how would I dress them up? What sort of decals, what sort of emblems, what sort of lavish thing would I make them shine with? And the answer is salvation. I'm going to dress these people of faith up with my lavish grace because that's the shiniest glory thing that there is. He loves us. He delights in the evidence of his glory among a redeemed people. Friends, this is a difficult sermon to land the plane with. I mean, is the answer at the end of the day, just do everything 100% for Jesus all the time. That's how you prove faith in God is just take everything that you got all the time, everything that you have, and just give it to Jesus. All right, go and be the church, right? That's not called faith. That's called legalism. I don't have a list of things for you to do. I don't have an amount that you should give in that box right over there. That's legalism. I would argue that there's a a little bit of an idea that we have at Cross Point Coast that I believe is, is faithful to the Scriptures. It's found in our contribution rhythm. And in our contribution rhythm, we use the language of leveraging. And we leverage our time, our talent, and our treasure. And you ask, well, how much of my time, how much of my talent, and how much of my treasure should I leverage for God, and how much do I get to keep? And the answer is, he gets all of it, you get none. It really is, 100%. And the more practical among you will say, but don't we have to eat? Right? Well, here's this. I would offer four ways that we can leverage 100% of everything that we have, our time, talent, and treasure, 
to the glory and dependence of the Lord. First of all, sacrifice. Some of the things that you have, you should just give up. You know it. Some of you, like right now, as soon as I said that, you know the thing. That you know you're supposed to just sacrifice. Perhaps it's an amount that you're just supposed to give in mission or in an offering. You know it. You know a talent that you're supposed to just say, you know what, that's a hobby. I'm going to leave it to heaven. You know it. Other things you're supposed to be generous with. Both of these things you don't wind up having in your possession. But the generous thing, it's not just that I'm supposed to give it up. It's that another is supposed to receive it. All right? It's you see a need and you know. Some of you right now, you know the need. And you say, I could meet that need if I was generous. If 100% of what I have belongs leveraged to the Lord. Time, talent, and treasure. Third, mission. Now this is a neat one because you don't actually give it up. You leverage it for the sake of the gospel. For me, it's my back porch. I'm not going to give away my back porch. It's my back porch. And I decorate my back porch and I sit on my back porch. But I also do everything I can to fill that back porch up with people that could use a back porch to sit on, have a good conversation, maybe be refreshed or maybe be encouraged or maybe be corrected. And so we leverage in mission what we continue to possess, but it belongs to the glory of the Lord. Mission. And finally, thanksgiving. The things that we keep and we eat and we take and we hobby and we enjoy and we say, God, this thing, this food that I eat today is from you. Thank you. It's tasty too. And we eat it. It's why we pray before we eat a meal. We don't pray before we eat a meal because it's a nice little reminder. We pray because the Lord provided that meal. Are you thankful? So that we don't live by bread alone. We live by thanksgiving independence upon our God. You see, in this way, everything that we have, our time, talent, and treasure, belongs to the Lord. This is what Christ has purchased for us. A life that does not need to save ourselves because he has already died on the cross to to cover over the guilt and shame of our sin and purchased for us a life that is reconciled to the presence of the holy God. So we can live lives that are leveraged for his glory in all things. Consider your ways. Paneled houses, and whatever that means for you in all the variety of positions of your lives, or the presence of the lavish grace, abundant mercy of the presence of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would challenge us, that some of the things that came to our mind here, we would not say, well, that was a a nice little thought for a celebration service, but we would say, Lord, think that's conviction. And we would submit it to maybe a brother, a sister, to a community group and say, hey, this is what came to my mind. What do you think? How can I leverage that? For the, should I, do I need to just give it up? Do I need to give it away? Do I need to leverage it? Do I need to just say, thank you, God, for this good gift? Lord, that we would not dwell in paneled houses that neglect the glory of our God. And so we rejoice in small, lesser things rather than eternal glory. Dress us up, Lord, in salvation. Transform us, rebuke us, encourage us, equip us, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.
name. Amen.